Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording the UFO activity. And there in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls, something crawling. The ghost torches were going to be Oh my god, are you seeing this? A formation forming. You're listening to Thresholds Radio, I'm Anthony K. With me is John Stevenson. On tonight's show, we have former criminal investigator, local historian, paranormal researcher, Ray Johnson. Also, we're going to be talking with Jeff Mudgett on the Mudgett Report. That and much more on Thresholds Radio. We'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back. With us now we have Ray Johnson, historical researcher into ghost lore and folklore now too. Are you mostly in Chicago, Ray, or do you do this all over the country now too? Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm local to Chicago. I mean, I've had people um, say, uh, you know, do you want to, would you ever consider doing stuff outside of Chicago? And I'm like, sure, but I'd like to start here since I was born here. So, um, and know a lot about the area, obviously, since I was, you know, lived here my whole life, but um, but no, specifically the, um, I mean, some of the stuff that I, I research is outside of Chicago, but as far as the book, that's specifically Chicago and, uh, and the suburban stuff. <clears throat> now, the, the second book that I'm working on now is, was initially going to be about, um, uh, you know, the, the ghostly architectural tour of Chicago, just concentrating mainly on some of the uh, architecturally and historically significant um, buildings in Chicago and some of the stories with them. But as I was uh, doing the research, um, and actually I'm, I'm a little behind in the writing. I'm supposed to have this done by the end of August, but I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But, um, but as I'm looking at some of the locations, and initially it was all going to be on, on the paranormal, and, and uh, which which is very cool. But uh, uh, but then I was uh, as I was talking to people, I'm digging up stories that are as interesting or more interesting than necessarily haunting, you know, and I'm like, wow, some of these really cool stories that nobody knows about, and I thought, well, why don't we just, you know, kind of re, um, you know, stick with the same type of topic, but I was thinking of maybe, uh, and I've been in discussions with the publisher to make sure that they're on board, but um, to call it something like Chicago's, Chicago's History, The Stranger Side. Mm, that sounds cool, and Chicago yeah. definitely has some strange history. <laughs> oh, oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> What the, what got? I mean, you started doing historical research was your main thing because you you, like you, right. you told right. me you love I mean, research, but what got oh, yeah. you on the paranormal side? Or I mean, or has it always been involved in that too? Well, the thing is, I've always been kind of involved in that because I had a lot of uh, strange experiences as a kid that I couldn't explain. So even as a kid, I was really into ghost stories and and uh, and actually, I was even interested in more of the. Uh, um, some of the scientific theory or pseudoscientific theory, if you want to call it that, 
there. And so that actually interested me too. I mean, some people are just interested in ghost stories and I was interested in, well, you know, obviously there's been enough people that have claimed to have, um, uh, situations where they're, you know, haunting or, or a psychic premonition or something that there's gotta be something to it. I mean, there, you know, everybody can't be crazy because you can, you can, you can talk to people and almost everyone has some sort of story. Right. Um, something they can't explain. So there's got to be something out there. I mean, or we're just all crazy. That's the other explanation. But um, but when I was a kid, <clears throat> like one of the, uh, uh, probably one of the, the ones that uh, that sticks with me the most is is uh, when I had seen what I thought was a ghost of a living person being my mom. And uh, I was uh, 13 and I was in the, um, in our living room. I grew up in Cicero, which is, you know, I was born in Chicago, grew up in Cicero. Um, which, you know, Cicero was, you know, obviously used to be part of, you know, um, or part was a lot bigger than it was, and then a lot of Cicero was annexed to Chicago um, right around the time of the World's Fair. Um, and uh, But anyway, so I was sitting in the living room of uh, uh, my home, and I was watching TV, and and uh, my brother, my younger brother, was, was uh, sitting next to me, and I don't remember what we were watching, but, but uh, it was in the evening, and and uh, I wanted to give her up something to drink, so I, I walk into the kitchen and, and I see this uh, woman uh, in the uh, kitchen cooking, and I just assumed it was my mom. You know, it looked like my mom. I, I was looking at her from behind, and she was wearing a, a house coat, and she was cooking something on the stove, and, you know, it was like a, a, a pot, mm-hmm. uh, stirring something in a pot. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, I just assumed my mom was in the kitchen. And... Uh, so I poured myself a glass of something to drink, and then I, I walked back into the living room, and I noticed that I I must have taken the remote with me into the kitchen and left it there. So I'm like, ah, oh, you know, remote's in the kitchen. My brother's like, don't worry about it. I'm going to get something to drink. I'll bring it back. So he, he leaves. He comes back, and I notice that he leaves the remote. He didn't, never brought the remote back either. So we both go back into the kitchen looking for the remote, and literally it was only a, you know, a few minutes between you know, when I was there and when he was there. And when I got to the kitchen, I looked around, and there was no <clears throat> pot on the stove. There was no nobody standing in the kitchen, and I'm like, that's weird. And it still didn't hit me until I heard um, my parents coming down from upstairs, and uh, there okay. was furniture downstairs, and my mom was completely dressed, and they were carrying this furniture down, down the back stairway, and, and I looked at my brother, and he's got the same kind of like weird look on his face, and I'm like, did you just... When, when you were out here in the kitchen, did you see someone here? And he's like, he's just shaking his head yes. And we're looking at my parents. I'm like, uh, Mom, were you just down here a minute ago, like cooking something on the stove? And she's like, uh, no, I was upstairs helping your dad in the furniture around. And both of us had seen it in two separate times. And um, it was just the weirdest thing. And I was like, but it, I mean, it looked like my mom from behind. It looked like her hair. She's about the same height, you know, the whole thing. Um, never had a conversation, um, but I never actually saw her face. So um, I've had people say, well, well, everyone from, you know, maybe your mom was wishing she was she was downstairs cooking something and were experienced. <laughs> yeah, she was not, now what mother's going to be wishing she's downstairs cooking? <laughs> I, I, have no, I have no idea. I'm just saying, I, I, I mean, and if we were the victim of everything our, our parents wished, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> exactly. So, but... but uh, but yeah, so, and, and then I had another person say, well, it could have been, a, uh, you know, a, a rip in the time-space continuum, and you were actually looking at something that happened, you know, a week ago or something, that it was just, 
kind of a like a recording type of thing. And so I don't know what it was. And and the funny thing is I've never, you know, as much as I like to do research, I never did research the house I grew up in to mm-hmm. see if there was anything going in. The house is still there. So, um, you know, one of these days I'll actually get around to researching that. But, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, that's, all your stories, you do background history and you do research on them. But like uh, we were saying before, too, is Chicago area has got an amazing history on the the folklore and the paranormal side. And uh, we were talking once before, and you were telling me some background about one of the stories. Uh, why don't you go into and, you know, tell us about all the amazing, you know, sites that you can go to in and around the city that are well-known and famous. Oh, well, I mean, uh, probably the, well, in the book, I, you know, I was concentrating on, on some of the more um, popular ones. And, of course, Resurrection Mary is, you know, one of the big um, right. stories especially in southwest, you know, suburban County and and um, and uh, you know for those people that don't know the story, um, the Resurrection Cemetery is one of the larger uh, Catholic cemeteries in in the Chicagoland area. It's actually in Justice, which is just a, a southwest, uh, a near southwest suburb of the city. And uh, and basically, if you're if you're Polish and you died in Chicago, you know you're probably in, in either Resurrection or Saint Albert or um, Pretty much, you know, if if you're Polish and live in Chicago, you've got relatives at Resurrection. So the, the story behind Resurrection Mary and uh, is that uh, well, the best I can gather, because I was kind of trying to figure out, you know, how it started and, and you know where it came from. And um, but it's uh, Resurrection Mary is really more or less a, a kickoff of the typical uh, vanishing hitchhiker urban legend, which you know every area has one. And, mm-hmm. Even, you know, there's multiple cultures that have the same type of, of uh, urban legend or ghost lore. And, and uh, but specifically, the, the Resurrection Mary is, is known worldwide. When I started writing about it, I was getting emails from people from Australia, you know, who had never been to the U.S. but, but had heard of Resurrection Mary and were really interested in it. And so, um, so it, you know, she's actually become kind of a loved uh, icon. Of Chicago, and, and you can't say anything negative about her, or, or, or you really get in trouble. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, no, I mean, I, I've I've gotten hate mail for some, and I've never even said anything negative about her. But, but, uh, but anyway, the the story goes is that uh, um, supposedly the first person who had ever uh, danced with Resurrection Mary was uh, Jerry Palis, and uh, and Richard Crow had interviewed him back in the in the mid '80s uh, for. Uh, uh, I believe it was Unsolved Mysteries uh, with Robert Stack that was on TV. And uh, and Jerry Palos tells a story that he was dancing at a, uh, a uh, what he calls it, a, a, a dance hall, but it was it was more like a taxi dance hall. You know, it's a smaller place called the Liberty Grove Hall and Ballroom. And, uh, you know, when you hear ballroom, you think, you know, like the Aragon or, or Willowbrook and the right. ballroom. But the Liberty Grove was just more or less... Um, you know, glorified VFW hall kind of thing, uh, <laughs> small building, and and it was a taxi dance hall. It was it was basically a bar that um, was actually over at Forty uh, Seventh and Mozart. Well, the actually I think the actual address is Forty Six Fifteen, if I'm not mistaken. It's not there anymore, but um, but it was basically a bar that that decided, hey, we can bring in more people if we if we have girls here that dance for ten cents a ticket type of thing. Um, so the girls would go in and they'd buy, buy a roll of tickets for a nickel apiece, and then they would dance with a guy for 10 cents, you know. So if the, the guys would buy a ticket for 10 cents, and then 
and then dance with the girl, and the girls get five cents on the ticket. Mm-hmm. They split it with the bar. But anyway, Jerry was there, and, and he said that he was there with, uh, uh, I believe it was his brother, and I think it was his cousin too, but I'm not sure. Um, and he was dancing with a girl in, in a white dress, is how he described her, and, and almost angelic in a way. And but very kind of cold to the touch, not really talkative. And then he had offered to give her a ride home. And according to him, he had, she had mentioned that she had lived on an address on Dayton Avenue and that her name was Mary. And uh, at the end of the night, he offered her a ride home. And, uh, you know, she, she accepted. And as they were driving, she asked him to take uh, a right uh, down, you know, and head down the uh, uh, 47th there, and head down uh, toward Archer Avenue, which is the opposite direction of where she said she lived. So he thought it was kind of confusing, and, and but he was fine with it, and, and they were driving, and when they had gotten close to uh, Resurrection Cemetery, or actually right across the gates, or right across, right across from the cemetery, depending on what version of the story you hear, she either disappeared out of the car um, without anything, or the way that Jerry explained it, she asked them stopped the car really quickly and so he did and she jumped out and he watched her disappear through the gates of Resurrection Cemetery. Well, he was obviously a little freaked out about that and, and the next day had gone back to the address that she had given him originally and had met with uh, an older woman at the house and uh, said, you know, I was out dancing with this girl Mary and she told me that, you know, she lived at this address and and the woman said, no, I'm sorry, there's no, no Mary that lives here. And uh, as they were having this conversation, he looks past her and saw a uh, picture on the, on the end table or mantle. And uh, he said, no, no, that's her. That's, that's the girl I was dancing with. And she said, well, then the mother was like, well, that's impossible because that's my daughter. And she died in a, in a car accident uh, a number of years ago. And so that's the... That's was that verified of, ever, do you know? I mean, did that part actually well, happen, do we that, know? Um, well, according to Jerry, you know, I had when I when I when I started doing the research into the legend, I was as I was finding things out, I was publishing them online, just as like a blog, and uh, you know, and it would come in piecemeal, and and so I I'd gotten contacted by uh, a family friend, Jerry, and and she said that that Jerry had not shared that story with anyone, you know, because I figured according to Jerry, from what he told. Uh, Richard Crow was that he had shared the story with a Tribune reporter shortly after it happened. Um, but I found no record in the Chicago Tribune at all. Not, not to say he didn't talk to someone, but they didn't right. publish it. So there was nothing in the newspaper that mentioned anything about a vanishing hitchhiker and, or Jerry's name or the Mary or any sort of thing like that. Um, and then, um, and the, but that was just in the Tribune. And of course, he said it was a Tribune reporter. Um, but then the, uh, a family friend who who had uh, called me and said that you know Jerry used to hang out with his brothers and play cards in their basement all the time, um, never ever told anybody about that story up until um, the Unsolved Mysteries episode. So we're talking, you know, roughly he supposedly danced with her in 1939, and he didn't tell the story to anyone until the 1980s, according to them. And they said. You'd think in 50 years someone would, you know, be talking about it. Um, but they said when they approached him after the show came out, and they said, well, how come you didn't tell anyone about this? You know, like we've known you for <laughs> a long time. And he's like, well, I just thought everyone would think that was crazy. 
Well, which is true back then, actually, too. I mean, I've heard that before, too, where people have known things for ages and never said a word till years later. Not, right. not as much so with the Internet nowadays, but back then, right. you didn't have a way right. to collaborate stories. Right, right. So you couldn't really... Um, yeah, so, so you know, did it happen, did it, you know, did it, didn't it, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, but initially people thought that, you know, the... Because of Jerry's story, the, the theory was is that Mary Bergovi, you know, because the thing about Resurrection Mary is that, you know, a lot of people, first question they ask is, who was she? Mm-hmm. You know, who, who, who is she? And, 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 and that's just kind of, I mean, who knows? We'll, we'll probably never know. But, um, but it's just kind of interesting to try to figure it out. You know, it's just kind of a, a fun project. So, so when I looked into it, it seems like the, the first person that, that kind of was accepted as being Resurrection Mary was uh, a girl by the name of Mary Bergovi. And uh, she was a Polish girl uh, from that area, and she actually lived on Damon. She lived at 4611 uh, Damon, and the building's still there. I don't know if the people that live there know that they <laughs> that they that they live in the house uh, where Mary Bergovi lives. They but, might uh, now, actually. They, they <laughs> Somebody now. might hear this. <laughs> <laughs> they do now. Yeah, yeah. Not that the book was a big seller. They probably didn't read the book, but you know. Um, <laughs> You're definitely listening to the show. You know, uh, um, there's something when I was a kid with Resurrection Mary, we were talking the other day, that uh, I remember growing up, there was that thing about the bars were bent and you could see her hands sure, in there. Sure. And I remember yeah, going absolutely. there as a kid. Do you want to tell people what you were telling me about that the other day? Well, the, the thing about the bars is that, I mean, the, the cemetery, I mean, you can't go in the Resurrection Cemetery and, and talk about Resurrection Mary. You know, they just don't like it. And um, not that they throw you out, but they, they roll their eyes and probably like, oh, no, here's another one. Right. Um, but uh, so I guess, I, you know, I wasn't about to talk to them about it. But I did find their uh, burial records. Um, uh, the... Um, you can, if, if people are in the genealogical research, they know that uh, the Mormons have uh, huge amounts of records that they've accumulated over the years, and and uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they have churches, uh, family history centers in, in different areas, and you can order films. I mean, they've microfilmed just about everything. It's, it's amazing. But anyway, um, uh, you know, they, they do have a lot of burial records from cemeteries, and Resurrection is one of them, and I think they've got all the way through the mid-1980s. Uh, copies of their original handwritten um, and typewritten um, burial records, which is very cool. But but uh, but yeah, with the cemetery, um, yeah, the, the the cemetery's explanation is that a uh, an end loader had bumped into the gates, which is you know very plausible that that it bent the gate, and that what happened was is that they they tried to unbend it by um, heating it up with a with a torch. Uh, blowtorch, and then hoping to, to heat it up enough to, to where they could pull the bar straight again. And um, and then, of course, you know, the, the other theories being that, you know, I mean, when you looked at the bars, it looks as though a hand had actually grabbed the bars and, and burned an imprint of, of a hand. Yeah, and that it actually did, too, because I, I saw that myself, as I was telling you before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it does look like it. I mean, it, it, it's creepy. But then... Uh, but then I was like, well, okay, I, you know, when the, when the cemetery explained that they, they tried to bend the bars back with a torch, um, my father-in-law, who has since passed away, um, was, was a welder his entire life. And I thought, well, he would know, you know something about it. So I, I grabbed the photograph and, and took it to him. And I, I didn't tell him necessarily that it was supposed to be a, a haunted 
you know, gate or, or the resurrection area was supposed to have grabbed it, but I just took in the photo. And I said, being a welder, if I showed you this, what would you say that is? And uh, he just looked at it. And he's like, well, it looks like ban- what he called banding. Um, and I said, well, what's banding? And he says, well, when you when you heat up, um, you know, it looks as though they were trying to heat the bars up in order to, in order to bend them back. And he said, and typically what you would do is you would heat a section of the bar at a time. You know, heat a small section and, and, and he kind of made a motion like he was moving the torch back and forth, left to right. Mm-hmm. And then as that part got hot, you would you would try to bend the bar a little bit and then you'd, you'd go a little bit further down and, and do the same thing and heat us another section of the bar and try to, try to slowly bend it back again. And he said it creates these bands on the bar. So it, it looks like banding. And so, I mean, that's, you know, to me that's a plausible explanation as well. But, um, you know, like I said, you know, in, in the beginning of the book, it's, you know, by doing the research, I'm not trying to, you know, debunk anything or, 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 you know, try to ruin a really good ghost story. You know, That's right. Yeah, you, got, you, you just got, ruined it for everybody there, Ray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'm sorry. Here comes the hate mail. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's Resurrection Cemetery. We got, uh, let's see, what is there, Monk's Castle, and the, we have the Grimes Sisters or whatever. We have Bachelor's Grove. What, what are, what are the big ones out here? Well, the Grimes, the Grimes Sisters is big, and what interested me about that is because it's an unsolved murder, and of course, being you know former law enforcement, that was like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool because it had the unsolved murder mystery coupled with with the paranormal. I'm like, perfect, you know, right up your alley. <laughs> Exactly. It's like best, best of both worlds. Um, and, you know, it also involves some Chicago history being in the 1950s in, in the Brighton Park um, area of Chicago. So um, very, very cool. I mean, the, for those of the people that don't know, um, really, really cool story. And, and uh, uh, well, cool, not cool that two young girls died, but it's just cool from the standpoint <laughs> of the unsolved. Yeah, I want to clarify that. Really, really cool. Two girls were murdered, you know. Okay, I'm glad you cleared that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. They're like, wow, really great. Um, but no, it was uh, Barbara, and Pat- Barbara and Patricia Grimes, um, two sisters. Um, Barbara was 15, and uh, Patricia was the younger one, 13. And uh, they lived in the Brighton Park area over on Damon. Everything seems to come back to Damon. Um but uh, they lived on the 3600 block, um, which is only 10 blocks away from where Resurrection Mary was, but um, where Mary Bogovi. And uh, in the, the, on December 28, 1956, they uh, were planning on going to, or they did go to, at least according to the mother, uh, to a, a show, Elvis Presley show, uh, Love Me Tender, at the Brighton, uh, Brighton Theater at the, uh, on Arch Avenue. And... Uh, and so, you know, once they left home that night uh, to go to the, supposedly it was, it was one of the opening nights of the movie, um, they never came back home. And so there was a big, you know, initially it was, you know, the police didn't believe the mom and said, oh, they're just runaways or whatnot. And, uh, you know, a couple of days had gone by and they hadn't turned up. And then it became uh, more of a, you know, uh, an actual missing persons case. And, and so it became uh, really uh, a famous case. I mean, it was a national case, and actually, Elvis Presley had gotten on the radio at one point asking the girls to come back home, and uh, and it wasn't until uh, the twenty second uh, of January when um, uh, uh, 
man by the name of Leonard Prescott was driving down um, German Church Road in then unincorporated Burr Ridge, and he saw on the side of the road what he thought were a couple mannequins, and uh, and he was actually on his way to the store and decided to uh, rather than go to the store, he's like, you know, it, it kind of kind of was odd. So for some reason, he went back home, picked up his wife before he went back to the spot. And I don't know if it's that, you know, if he thought if there were actual bodies, I don't want to be the only one discovering it. <laughs> okay. A suspect or something. I don't know what he was thinking, but he went back, got his wife, and then went back and then discovered they were actually the bodies of, of two girls. And then he reported it to the Willow Springs Police Department. And then, of course, the Cook County Sheriffs came out and then they, you know, eventually identified the bodies. Miss um, Barbara and Patricia, but they were unclothed and they were they were laid kind of perpendicular to each other uh, on the on the side of the road, just just beyond the guardrail, and uh, and so then there was now, now obviously it's a murder investigation, and uh, and then um, they were trying to figure out how the girls died, and they never did. I mean, the official cause was exposure, was the only thing they could come up with, and there were some uh, you know there were some you know rumors that the the then the coroner, Karen, had kind of screwed things up, or they didn't do the autopsy the way he should have. But but there were no marks on the body. I mean, there were marks, but um, not marks that would have caused death. Um, and they couldn't really tell if the girls had been beaten because the faces had been kind of damaged because of you know animals and whatnot. Um, so they really could. They weren't strangled. They weren't shot. They weren't stabbed. Um, they weren't bludgeoned, as far as I could tell. Uh, weren't poisoned. Um, they ran the toxicology and they came back. So, so really, all I had was exposure. So, so that was the, the official cause of death. Uh, and there were a number of suspects in the case, and, and uh, the suspects one supposedly uh, admitted and confessed to it. His name was Benny Bedwell, and, and uh, but then it was later found out that Cook County kind of coerced the confession, and he made it up completely because the the question was, were the girls killed right away, or or were they missing for a month? Um, held captive, um, you know, what, what happened after they disappeared. Well, after the autopsy, they found that the, the contents of their stomachs um, were what they ate for dinner that night before they left for the movie. Mm-hmm. So, saying that they would have died within four hours of, of leaving the house. So, obviously, they've been dead for a month up to that point, um, or almost a month. And uh, so then it was, well, were they dumped there originally? And then, you know, because we're talking Chicago in December. And uh, and so they they were obviously frozen, and they had to wait a couple of days for the bodies to start the autopsy. And, and so Benny Bedwell was freed because his whole confession was based on the fact that he and another guy, uh, Whitmire, had hung out with the girls for a month, going to bars and going to movies and having a good time and all this other stuff. And and that was all a fabrication um, that he came up with. Because Benny was was kind of uh, um, he was slow. He had some. Um, uh, mental issues, and, and so he was, um, I guess, easily coerced mm-hmm. into their addiction, so, uh, which is unfortunate. But he was freed. He didn't spend any time in jail. Uh, but they never did find out who committed the crime. Um, so it, it and then and then of course there's the the ghost stories associated with the with the, where the where the girls' bodies were found, and it's it's called the ghost ghost car driven church road, and. Um, and basically, there. Well, first of all, there used to be a house out in there. There's a subdivision there now, close to where the girls were 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 left. And at the time, there was just a single house and a long driveway. And um, uh, if 
became a hangout for teenagers because the house shortly after the girls were found was abandoned. And people were like, why did people that lived there suddenly abandon all their property, including a car that was only a year old at the time? Oh, really? In the garage. Oh, yeah. It was a, it was a 1955 Buick, I believe. And it was in the garage. And it stayed in the garage. And uh, there were, you know, plates on the table and food in the cupboards and kids' toys and tools in the garage. So, I mean, it's, it's almost like whoever lived there left really quickly. Oh, that's cool. I actually that's, don't – I know this story of it, but I don't know the details. So this is the first I've heard this, too. Really? Oh, cool. But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, it was um, – and then, they, you know, the theory was, well, maybe the murderer lived there and, and hightailed it out of there. But I, I don't know of too many murderers that would – in their um, own yard. <laughs> yeah, I got dumb bodies that close to their house, just out, you know, I could see people burying bodies on their property. That's a lazy murderer, like, ah, right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oops, maybe I should have done that. All right, kids, let's get out of here. Um, we got to go. Where are we going? Well, it doesn't matter. Don't worry, get in the car. Wait, no, don't get in the car. We're going to leave it there. Um, yeah, it's really odd, but... Um, Was there anything ever found out about that? I mean... You know, any well, about the house, or... no. You know, the interesting thing is, is um, I mean, I would assume that, I, that the police had actually talked to someone at the house. Now, I, you know, I had talked to, um, you know, Dale Kaczmarek, who had talked to, um, I think he said the, the name of the, the family was called Warner, mm-hmm. that owned the house. And, that, and, I, and I think he published um, something about a conversation he had with, a relative or a daughter of the person who owned the house, um, and and the explanation he got was that, um, you know, that it was just it was strange that you know they felt uncomfortable that these bodies were found so close to the house and they they didn't feel right about it. Um, now, when I looked up, um, and I'm not saying Dale's wrong. I'm you know I'm just saying that it met the people who had told him that they owned the property. That still doesn't make um, sense though, leaving that, all your stuff, including your car. <laughs> Yeah, I just I don't know. So I mean, I tried looking into the um, um, records, the ownership records, the real estate records for that area of, of Cook County, and um, and I couldn't find any any Warner name as far as being an owner. I mean, I've got a list of owners' names that that eventually I was going to contact and see if they knew anything about it. Um, but I didn't see the name. I didn't see the name that he had mentioned. And in, in, in that doesn't mean they didn't live there. It just means whoever it was didn't own it necessarily when they may have rented it. I'm not sure. But, um, so, I mean, it's still kind of the jury's out on what actually happened with the house. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense that you'd leave a a new car in there. And and that car stayed in there for a number of years. And then eventually, you know, kids, it became the place to go when in high school, if you weren't on a dare, you'd go down this long pathway and, and, you know, break into the house and, you know, kind of look around the haunted houses, you know, (laughs) one part of the haunted, of course, at that point. And, and uh, I had actually met um, a gentleman by the name of Bruce Beveridge, who was a uh, Willow Springs uh, police department, uh, police sergeant. And uh, he said he went there as a kid. And he remembers uh, walking up the pathway with a friend of his. And when they got to the house, he remembers seeing a, uh, what looked like a white, really white, almost like someone wearing a white mask, like peering out of the window at him with these really dark, sunken black eyes. And he said at that point, he just took off running. And he said, I've never run so fast so far in my entire life. And he said, uh, he said he still doesn't know what it was. You know, it, it, he doesn't think it was his imagination because it was just so clear. You know, his face, and who knows, maybe it was some 
people inside the house messing around. Or... So is that the paranormal side of this? Is I mean, is it, oh, is well, they actually, say the they're, girls they're, are out there now? Well, what they said is that, I mean, the ghost car of German church is the fact that, you know, when people would go to visit this house or if you were out along German church road, um, it's more of an auditory thing. That's what hmm. people hear. They hear, uh, they hear a car. They don't see a car. They hear a car, you know, drive up to where the, the girls were dumped and uh, stop. Then you hear a car door open and, it, and someone throwing something out, something heavy hitting the ground, and then the trunk closing, and then and the car peels out. Oh, that's leaves. cool. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like a, uh, just a recurring kind of haunting type of thing. And, and there's been a number of people that, you know, well, at least one, Tamara Schaefer, had, had written a book, Murder Gone Cold, and, and uh, she's got a lot of information. We had an opportunity to sit down with her in Chicago and kind of compare notes on the case. And, and uh, you know she's really really into the story and and uh, really cool book if you get a chance to read it. <laughs> um, but uh, she had uh, talked to some individuals who were actually uh, you know doing the thing where they were trying to go visit the house when it was still there. It burned down sometime in the mid '80s, uh, so there's obviously no more house and there's a subdivision there now a new subdivision. And people but, still uh, go out to that lot too, right, to see if they can see things. And I hear that before that there's problems out there with people parking in front of it still. You know, I could I could see that there's really not a, a there's really no parking around there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all you all you have is is like the side of the road, um, and then the, the closest parking is in the subdivision. So I could see people getting tired of you know cars parking in their subdivision. Um, and then the next closest thing is Trinity Church, which is a little further down the down the road. But if you park at Trinity, it's like a three or four block walk. To where the where they were where they were dropped off. And we know ghost hunters are lazy, so they don't want to walk more than fifty feet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've been I've been out to the spot and you know trying to take pictures of what's there now and comparing it to the old photos because um, I was able to find a lot of old original photos on on, on the Brown's case. Um, it was funny they were selling them on the internet. Someone had bought the Sun Times, all the original negatives um, from in the news, uh, and it's on eBay, and I think it's actually called Historic Images now. They have a company now. Um, they had purchased uh, a lot of the, or actually all of the old sometimes photos that were taken for the, for the newspaper, and uh, and they had bought them all, and they're selling them on eBay. So it's not just the Grand Sisters, but a lot of Chicago history stuff. And you get them for like 10 or 15 bucks a piece, and then you, you own the negatives, and so you own the copyrights to That's the photos. Cool. So there were a lot of Grand Sisters, yeah. Yeah, I was kind of surprised when I saw it. I was like, I was just kind of cruising the internet, and I was looking for some pictures to use in the book, and um, and I came across these. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me! These are the original negatives, you know. And so, yeah, I purchased a lot of them. And, a little bit of history, uh, kind of cool. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, very cool. And you had all the original notes from the original reporter, the photographer that was out there. A lot of them are handwritten or typewritten. Uh, notes concerning the location and, and the name of the person who took the photo. Yeah, very cool stuff. So we got Resurrection but, uh, Mary here. We got the Grime Sisters. What else is your in your like your top ten list? I mean, I I know a bunch of them myself, but what's your next favorite? Oh, I mean, one? They're, they're all over. I like I like the um, I like a lot of them. I mean, you know, it down. I, I like I mean, the Peabody Estate. Now that's not necessarily Chicago, but that's that's a big been a big Chicago urban legend thing. It's it's not too far from Chicago. What, but, what's um, the story on that one? The Peabody Estate um, is actually it's owned by the Forest Preserve District now, and it was actually a, the home um, of uh, Francis Peabody, 
Krampus uh, Stuyvesant, I think is the way you pronounce it. Wasn't that convenient since it was called the Peabody Estate? (laughs) Peabody Estate, you know, go figure. But but actually it was called Mays Lake. You know, people call it the Peabody Estate, but he called it Mays Lake because he named the the small lake behind the the house after after his daughter. And uh, so it's actually called the Mays Lake Peabody Estate. But anyway... um, uh, the, the the house is amazing. It was um, Peabody was a coal magnate back in the back in the early part of the 20th century, and made his money selling coal, obviously, and, and had a lot of money, and had built this um, house as kind of a retreat from the, from the from the dirtiness of Chicago, you know, all the coal and and uh, I mean the, the Chicago air quality was really bad uh, back then. Not that it's great now, but but it was really bad back then, and. Uh, so anyway, he, he, he built this home, in, uh, which is now Oak Brook, and, uh, and uh, he had passed away, uh, I believe, in the, like shortly after he built the property, and he was into like uh, drag hunting, is what they call it, and so he had a huge estate, and he'd have people over, and, um, and they would have these, it's like a fox hunt, only he wouldn't use an actual animal, because he wasn't into, into torturing animals, and so what they would do is they would drag this um, piece of fur, like a rabbit pelt, um, uh, a horse would drag this pelt around, and then and then the dogs and the other horses would chase after this fake prey, you know, and they'd have mm-hmm. these drag hunts, what they call them. Well, he ended up having a heart attack and a drag hunt, and they found him, you know, laying next to his horse, and uh, so the, the family, uh, well, they, they buried him on the, uh, on the property. And they had erected a, a chapel uh, on the property that was modeled after uh, the chapel of St. Francis of Assisi. And it's a beautiful little chapel, and it used to be on the south side of the property, and he was actually buried uh, near the chapel, and the chapel was there marked kind of like his grave. Well, it became, uh, he was also a big supporter of the, the Franciscans uh, order and uh, the Catholic Church. And uh, so he had offered the property for a very good price or his family did, offered the property for a very good price to the Franciscan friars, or monks, as a lot of people call them. And um, and so they, they used it as a retreat home and, and uh, you know, part of, you know, kept classes there. And, and so they took over the ownership of the Peabody Estate. Well, the thing in high school to do was is that you would um, sneak onto the property and try to find Peabody because there was all these legends about him being encased in a clear casket um, filled with oil or formaldehyde, and you could see the body, but yet his treasure was buried somewhere nearby, and so it was kind of like a, a fun thing to do. Kids would, would, would park um, outside uh, the property, and it was a long, used to be a long path, just a long, dark, dirt path into the house. Um, so it was kind of creepy, and then and then they would they would try to go into the chapel or get into the chapel because that's supposedly where the body was, and and if you got caught, if the monks caught you, they'd chase you down. And if they, they actually were able to, to grab you, they'd take you back to the chapel. And they would give you a choice of either calling the police and have you arrested for trespassing, or you could pray all night, kneeling on a broomstick or rice or whatever painful objects they could get for you to kneel on. And, and you would pray all night in the chapel, and then they'd let you go in the morning, um, kind of thing. So that was the, the legends behind Peabody. And there's also uh, uh, ghost stories concerning... Uh, you know, the, the rumor was going around that he had an illegitimate uh, child with one of the caretakers or one of the servants, 
and that uh, they lived in the house. Um, I mean, obviously the servants did live in the house with them, but supposedly this one female servant had had an illegitimate child um, with Peabody, and that at some point the um, uh, the child had taken a tumble down the stairs and had died. And then the rumor was that you know somebody had killed the kid because he was illegitimate and, and whatnot. But supposedly there's uh, some activity in the house having to do with like a, uh, a bouncing ball or digging digging a child, you know, wandering around. And, and supposedly some, uh, an officer from the Forest District had heard it. You know, at one point had actually seen um, an apparition of a child there. So um, so it's got some cool history behind it. And uh, and it's really neat if you ever get a chance to see the building. Um, it actually has secret passages built into it uh, because when he had built it, you know, it was, it was shortly after the Haymarket, you know, riot. So there wasn't, you know, there was some fear of the, the managers that, you know, the employees would would attack at some point, you know, and they they had ways, secret ways of getting out of different areas. There's a cool thing behind a bookcase in this library that goes down to a spiral staircase that comes out behind the cupboard of a, of a small door on the first floor. So it, it and there's a couple other uh, secret passages too, which are really cool. Um, but that's a real, a real popular uh, urban legend on the west, west side of Chicago. Do we have anything, uh, being this is a Chicago area, Ray, do we have anything involving like uh, any of the Chicago mobsters or anything, since we know a lot of them died in the city? Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's I, mean, the, I mean, obviously the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, yeah, that was a little accident I heard. <laughs> yeah, there was. <laughs> the gun just misfired. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, a couple hundred times. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's a fascinating topic. You know, um, you know, people aren't aware. You know, that at the uh, cartridge company on on uh, Lincoln there um, is where um, you know it's basically the story of the the fighting between the South Side. Uh, mob that was headed up by Al Capone and, and the North Side, uh, headed up by Bugs Moran, you know, the Irish gang. And so, you know, the idea being that Capone was, was uh, I mean, the jury's still out on the whole thing. The, the generally accepted is that Capone was behind the killing of Bugs Moran just, you know, on the basis of, of bootlegging, you know, on, uh, you know, one territory versus another. Mm-hmm. And um, and the idea being that, that, that he had intended to kill Bugs Moran, who was the, the head of the gang at that point, the Northside uh, Irish gang, and um, and they ended up getting seven guys. Um, well, the card, the card, the uh, cartage company where it happened was um, over on Lincoln, just north of uh, where the Chicago History Museum is now. And the building isn't there anymore. Um, it's actually now just a, uh, a parking lot, uh, for the most part, for, our, for an apartment building there, and. Um, and uh, on Valentine's Day in 1929, uh, seven guys, part of the part of the Bugs Moran crew, were inside the Cartage Company when uh, they thought they were being raided. You know, it was basically uh, a couple people in plain clothes and a couple uniformed officers, uh, supposedly "quote unquote" Chicago dressed up as Chicago cops, came in and kind of lined them up against the wall and and uh, and then used shotguns and Tommy guns to just mow everybody down. And uh, and so, and it was a pretty ingenious plan. I mean, there's still the people that think, well, maybe the Chicago police were actually behind it. Me personally, I don't think you would wear a Chicago police uniform. <laughs> um, you know, if you're going to be trying to off somebody, you know, as a cop, I, I think the last thing I would want 
where was my uniform? <laughs> your badge um, number right on your shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Um, but but if it was the Capone gang, of course Capone was 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 in Miami at the time, which was you know convenient. Um, so he had a, a pretty good alibi as far as him not being behind the actual killings or actually killing anybody. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean there's a lot of stories behind that because even even trying to prove who had done it, I mean there was a, a gang from St. Louis who was the prime suspects necessarily and then there were another uh, number of other suspects that um who eventually ended up dead you know so there weren't any live suspects <laughs> for a while so they kind of just the investigation kind of died it out sounds kind of like the chicago way too <laughs> yeah exactly you know it's like well you know you hire the guys to kill somebody and then you have to kill them uh-huh yeah never-ending circle <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, it was kind of funny. One of the, you know, the, like on the historical side of it, I thought it would be a really neat project to kind of look at the victims, you know, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and and, uh, and actually look into the history of each one of them and actually try to find some living descendants of the, of the people to see if they even, you know, even know that they're related to, you know, a victim of St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And, and I never did finish the project. I started with uh, Reinhard Schlimmer was the optometrist. I mean, he was probably the least mob-connected of the, of the seven that died that day. And uh, I just thought, well, why don't we start with him? Because I don't want to necessarily start with, you know, start with something easy because, you know, we start looking into the family of a mobster and who knows what you're going to dig up and you probably don't <laughs> want to go there. But but uh, so I started with Reinhardt and it was kind of a cool project. You know, I you know, researched him, where his family was from. Um, found out, you know, he was married twice, divorced twice. Um, and he was a young guy. He was in his 20s. And uh, he was actually a, his father was an, a, a doctor, an optometrist, actually. He was more of a, a glorified uh, glassmaker. You know, he was more of a technician than an optometrist. But, um, but he used to hang with the, um, the mobsters, and, and he had money, and so they hung out with him. And, and so it was more like kind of a fringe player, just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It didn't work and, out uh, too well for him. <laughs> no, no, it didn't work out. There. And they never did get Bugs Moran. Because the funny thing is that the idea was to, primarily they wanted to kill Bugs Moran, being the leader. And they knew they, if it had gotten word that he was supposed to be there um, on that particular day. And they had lookouts across the street um, as people were showing up to the cartridge company. And, uh, and they thought um, that, uh, that Bugs Moran had showed up. But it was actually, I believe it was Albert Weinshank, that, um, one of the guys that showed up, that looked like you know, similar to Bugs Moran, so I think one of the lookouts had actually had called the shots a little bit early, and Bugs Moran had actually been walking toward the uh, area and saw the um, quote-unquote fake squad car, mm-hmm. and so he didn't want to go anywhere near the place. So once he saw the squad car, he just kind of turned around and walked the other way, so they ended up missing him altogether. So, so whoever ID'd out. that wrong probably didn't walk away either. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure there are. <laughs> I'm sure nobody made it out, you know, alive of that one. So that was just, and plus, it was kind of the beginning of the end, you know, for a lot of the, you know, the, the the organized crime at that point. I mean, not that we don't have organized crime now, but but it was kind of, um, I mean, they they kind of had their way with Chicago at that point, and nobody really kind of gave them a hard time. You know, a lot of the police officers were kind of on the payroll, so a lot of the stuff they did was overlooked. But this just made too much 
national news. I mean, when 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 it gets to the point where we're massacring seven people with machine guns, um, <laughs> then then the politicians were getting a little pressure, and and so it was actually such a big deal that they kind of uh, messed themselves over by doing it because it just brought a lot of attention, which you know they don't necessarily want, and so that it brought down some pressure from above. So it was really kind of the beginning of the end for Capone and, and those guys. I know in that lot where it happened, like you said, the building is gone, but I know someone that was actually out there in a group and, you know, it was a paranormal tour and uh, he, he had his uh, recorder running and he, mm-hmm. he he recorded gunshots, which, you know, in Chicago, you don't think twice about. But the odd thing is, yeah. is <laughs> n- n- nobody in the group responded because so, they say they didn't hear nothing. But as you're listening to people talk. No one responded to the shooting, so it was kind of wow. creepy. Like you know, it, it really might have been kind of a ghost shots because you know when people are talking, you hear a gunshot. You know, somebody will say something. Usually, it's it, it, of course it is commonplace in the city, but still, you're going to notice it. Yeah, but still, you're going to notice gunshots. I mean, no matter how common it is, I mean, your your self preservation you know mechanism is going to kick in when you hear gunshots. I think, and you're, you know, it just kind of gets your attention. You know, you don't like to get hit. No, not normally. No, we... But, you know, I, I, you know, my personal belief is that, you know, like 99.9% of, of the paranormal stuff is, is going to have a scientific explanation, which doesn't make it any less creepy. You know, I, you know, I, I exactly. think that times of violent death or whatnot, that there's a lot of energy being put out in one way, you know, one shape or form. I mean, we all give off kind of a chemical electricity. This is part of our normal living. So, um, I, I, you know, I do believe that some of that stuff may be able to be recorded somehow or, or caught on, on stuff. But, it, but in order to be caught on, my belief is in order to be caught on something physical, mm-hmm. like a camera or a, or a recorder, I mean, those are of this world. So I don't see how they could record something not of this world. But, but you know, paranormal, you know, I think is different than supernatural. I mean, paranormal right. just means along with normal. Well, like I always say, there's no uh, rhyme or reason to this, and no one knows what it is actually. So we don't, we have no right. idea what can and can't happen, and right. it's just right. you know, there's no rules to this. Right, right. And initially, when when I started, I, I wanted to interview a, a paranormal investigative group. Um, like I said, I'm not I'm not a paranormal investigator, so I wanted to kind of include something in the book about the techniques that they use. So um, the group's not longer together, but it was PRI out of. Uh, out of the western uh, suburbs, and uh, and you know, I, I kind of brought them the questions. I'm like, well, how do how do you know, you know? And and they were really, you know, uh, I wasn't trying to be demeaning or anything. I was I was just, you know, how do you know, you know, that you can capture a ghost on camera, or how do you know that a ghost causes an EF, EMF meter reaction, or how do you know that it, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when exactly. were younger, you know, they they made leprechaun traps. You know, <laughs> school. No, they did. It was, it was a project, you know, and so, you know, how do you make a leprechaun trap? Well, what do you know about leprechauns? Well, they like shiny stuff and they like gold, so the kids make all these little devices to catch a leprechaun. But I said, you know, if you, if you don't know the physical makeup of a ghost or if you don't know exactly what it is, how do you, how do you, you know, make a device or use a device to, to capture that? And, and the answer I thought was really good, and, and I think a lot of the, the, the better groups, you know, think this way, is that, is that you're not necessarily trying to, to prove the existence of those. You're trying to disprove it, actually. Exactly. So you're kind of looking for a real reason for some of the, for some of the activity, and, and that if you, if you don't find uh, a 
reason for it to happen, then it's then it's something unknown. Right. Know, I always try to prove what it what it's not, and exactly. then and then whatever's left, no matter how odd it might seem, is right. a possibility. Then. Right. Yeah, but I thought that answer was really cool. I mean, I could see someone getting defensive and like, well, well if you don't believe in it, you know, and and they weren't. They were just, you know, no, we're just we're actually trying to disprove it. And so that made more sense to me. And uh, and I was not, you know, I, I always had my question about EMF uh, meters, and I'd gone with uh, CPR on an investigation, and um, Ms. Eric and, and Mark Beck and um, Samantha Pena out of uh, Naperville. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and they're a good group of people, and, and I like them a lot. And so they invited me to go on, a, on one of their investigations. And, and so I, you know, grabbed an EMF meter, I'm walking around in, in the basement, Actually, first of all, I walked in the basement where the activity was supposed to be going on, and, and there was one area of the basement and, and that I got kind of a weird feeling from, and I don't know how to explain it. It's almost like a tingling or, you know, kind of thing like that, and, and so I, I, I grabbed one of the EMF meters, and, you know, because, you know, supposedly high EMF can cause, you know, feelings in people, and high, high you know, if the EMF reading is really high, then it can cause hallucinations and headaches and, and you know, whatever. Um, so I'm walking around, and right where I was standing, the thing went crazy. I mean, it went up to, like, I mean, I don't know, it didn't have a number, it was more lights, but mm-hmm. it went all the way to red. And uh, and I'm looking around, and I, I look up, and there was a, uh, a transformer from the doorbell. Oh, right above you? <laughs> it was right above my head. So, like, like, literally, you know, like three feet above my head. And so it's like, oh, okay. So maybe I was getting something from the from the EMF that was in that particular. So you were spot. getting a so, paranormal doorbell. <laughs> yeah, I was getting a doorbell. You know, but but at least it's it, you know validated the feeling I was having. You exactly. know, not that it was a ghost necessarily, but it was like, oh, okay. So this you know this goes this is valid. You know, so because I did get a feeling without even knowing that thing was there, and then sure enough, the highest EMF spot was right where I was standing when I was getting that weird feeling. So. So, yeah, so I thought that was really cool. What else we got? We got, I'm trying to think of what else that we have. Uh, there's Munger Road out here. We have Monk's Castle. Well, Bachelor's Grove, obviously. What, what are the what are the big ones out there? What are your, some of your favorites? Um, well, I know Munger Road is out near Bartlett. And, yeah, have you uh, been to that one before? You know, I've, I've been there, and, um, you know, I, I think the, the story behind it is really cool. Um, you know, being the, you know, the, the story being that, you know, supposedly there were a lot of, Kids killed on a, on a train crossing um, out there along the road. But there's no cor- corresponding real news story for that, though, isn't there? I heard. No, no, there's no. Not that I could find anyway. There were, there was no. I mean, I'm not saying there's not, but right. I looked at but and, and uh, you know, I've got a, a buddy who's a, a Bartlett um, a city councilman now, and and uh, and I couldn't find anything, you know, relating to a large group of. Um, People dying at that railroad crossing. I mean, yeah, and that would I, be I, news too. I, what it is is that they're you know stalling on the railroad track thing is kind of like a legend, th- you know, in different places throughout the world. I think you hear about it a lot. Right. right. Well, this one specifically, specifically what kids do, and, and and it's kind of funny the way it the way it materializes. You know, in, in police work, it kind of make a lot of sense. Well, what they what they would do is they would people would purposely park on the tracks, and this is what made it dangerous. And I think there's like. <laughs> out there is that the idea being that if, if if your car stalled on the tracks that the kids who had died previously would try to push your car off the tracks to save your life mm-hmm. 
And so what, what they were telling kids to do, or I don't know how this actually started, but um, you would go there and park on the tracks as though your car was, although it wasn't. There's something wrong with that plan right there from the you, get-go. Yeah, I got, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At what point did you think that was a good idea? But, uh, so, so you park on the tracks and, and you sprinkle talcum powder on, on your trunk. You know, and then, you know, hoping to catch, you know, the... the, the Fingerprints, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the fingerprints. So you sprinkle talcum powder on your trunk, and then and then you wait for a while. And then after a while, you drive off, and then you, you stop on the side and you look, and, and there's the fingerprints of the kids that were, that were um, you know, trying to push your car. Well, I mean, people were looking at their own fingerprints is what they were doing, mm-hmm. because they were, they were touching the trunk previously, and then sprinkling the talcum powder, which then stuck to where their fingers had touched. And then as they drove off, it blows the rest of the talcum powder off, and it's just kind of like what you do in police work. When you're yeah, as I say, there. just like you're doing real fingerprints. <laughs> right, right. So that's what they're seeing, you know, but it was freaking kids out because they didn't realize that what they were doing is they're catching their own <laughs> fingerprints in the trunk. You know, so they would, they would do that and actually see fingerprints, you know, in the talcum powder on the, on the back of their trunk. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, this actually happened. What kind of prints uh, do you but, think you get, Ray, if you put them on there and you get in the tracks and then when you, you put it in reverse and gun it, do you get prints, like, smearing down as you run over <laughs> the ghost children? <laughs> there you go. Uh, that'd be terrible. Ghost kid. Yeah, can you kill a ghost kid, though? They're only trying to help. You know, I saw on, I don't remember what it was years ago, one of those paranormal shows, I don't know, one of them, and they were showing that where they the news crew stopped on the tracks, but it wasn't Munger Road, it was somewhere else, and they, they put baby powder on there, and there was little tiny fingerprints all over it, but it was somewhere else. So this is a reoccurring story here. Oh, I'm sure it's like like most urban legends. They kind of started. I'm sure it didn't start at Munger Road. I'm sure somebody started it somewhere, and there's been versions of it probably everywhere. You know, just like the vanishing hitchhiker type of thing. We're actually getting. We're running low on time here. What do you got? What's one? What's another one of your favorite ones here? You got four minutes to tell me. <laughs> wow. I've got a problem with talking that most people say, and it's like, you know, I couldn't tell you the time in four minutes. But, uh, <laughs> well, you're wasting time now. Come on, move, move, move. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I like the story of Teresita Bassa. Now, we're not going to cover it in four minutes, but we're going to Oh, no, you, you can go over it. We've got no timetable. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Actually, I've got to give blood this morning, you know, yeah. so I'm probably passed out about 9 a.m., um, you know, having ice put on the back of my neck, which is highly embarrassing, you know, to tough ex-cop, ex-military, you know, show up to give blood and pass out. You know. See, now you're embarrassing um, yourself on radio. <laughs> I know, that's okay. That's okay. I do it all the time. That's fine. I'm secure. I'm secure enough in my manhood. But, um, but no, with Parasita Bassa, that was interesting because it was the, one of the only times I know of that, that psychic um, evidence was introduced in an in actual uh, on a murder case, in a court case. Um, which I'm really shocked that they allowed it in, but it, they kind of had no choice because Teresa, real quickly, Teresa DeBasa was a respiratory therapist that worked at Edgewater Hospital in the 70s, and she was murdered over on uh, Pine Grove in the apartments on, near Pine Grove in Diversity. And, um, and so they, they didn't have any suspects. They, you know, they had found her uh, unclothed, stabbed in the chest with a knife still in her chest, and, and the apartment burned. You know, they started a fire, turned the mattress over on her and started a fire. Well, there were no suspects and the, and the case kind of went cold. And then about three months after it happened, um, 
Elmhurst, or no, Evanston, I'm sorry, Evanston actually, Evanston police get a call uh, from uh, the husband of, of Remy, Remy Chua. And uh, he was a doctor, and her, her, his wife was Remy Chua, who's also a uh, respiratory therapist at Edgewater Hospital. Well, what happened was that Remy, three months later, suddenly started having going to these trances where she more or less became Teresita Bassa, you know, who was obviously deceased. And she was she was talking to the husband as though she was Teresita Bassa and naming um, her um, killer, and not only naming the killer. Uh, but also what jewelry was missing from Teresita Boss's apartment well, that's and cool. who owned the jewelry and their telephone numbers. <laughs> uh-huh. Telephone numbers. <laughs> you know, now that's but, convenient. <laughs> and, and the telephone, you know, which is a unique, you know, normally with you know, psychic stuff, it's like, you know, I hear the letter C or I see this and I see, you know, and you got to kind of figure it out. But, but she was like, okay, this is who killed me. Um, he took this jewelry, described it, you'll find it, you know, in his apartment, and this is who the original owners are, and these are the telephone numbers. Wow. So that's when Evanston said, okay, something's up here, so they called Chicago, and they said, uh, we got to talk to you. Uh, long story short is that, you know, everything that, that this woman had told them ended up being true. You know, they found the jewelry, they called the telephone numbers, the people showed up, identified the jewelry. Uh, the guy eventually um, confessed. You know, to the crime, um, but it was—it's just a really, really cool story. And, that sounds uh, neat. And well, actually, like I, I've said this before too, when a psychic does that, it's one of two things: they're actually really the psychic, or they're the killer. Exactly. And you know, I've talked to psychics, and they're like, you know, we're almost afraid to go to the police because if you go there, and, and I don't blame them because I'll—I'll I'll be honest. If someone should, if we had a murder, unsolved murder, and some person walks in and says, "Yeah, well, uh, I've got some information, and yeah. you're gonna find the body." Yeah, here. yeah, I know where the body is. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, well, come on back here. We need to talk to you for a little bit more. You know, would you like a cup of coffee? Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna be here a while. <laughs> so. Well, that's a cool one. Do you uh, do you want to talk or brief, tell us about your book real quick, or where people can buy it, or do you have any websites oh, sure, or any information? Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's called Chicago's Haunt Detective, and like again, it's not because I'm a paranormal investigator, just because of my detective background. And um, it's called Chicago's Haunt Detective, and obviously, you know, Ray Johnson being the author. It's by uh, Schiffer Publishing, and you can get it on Amazon. You can get it pretty much in, in any of the local bookstores. And uh, and I've got a uh, website, hauntdetective.com, and uh, you can order it on there, an autographed copy. Um, and we just started doing some, uh, just actually yesterday was the first tour. I always thought it would be nice, nice to do kind of a walking tour of some local history. So we started doing Elmhurst, um, a neat historic district. So we started doing some walking tours there. And, and there's a link on my website to that, and it's actually called Voices from Beyond Tours. And, um, so if you go to hauntdetective.com, they can find everything that they need straight from their Facebook groups, that you know, blogs that I write, stuff like that. Okay. Well, that uh, that was cool, Ray. I appreciate you having on and a lot of information there that most people don't know, actually, too, because you have a little bit more of the history on there where everyone else just tells us the stories. Yeah, and plus, you know, I mean, the kid, I, I hated history in school, and I was like, you know, if you tell people the interesting side of history, then the rest of the stuff will stick. You know, like I would never remember when, well, I would know that St. Valentine's Day massacre happened in St. Valentine's Day, but there's the names and people involved you'd never remember unless unless you heard like the really interesting stuff, and then it kind of sticks. Yeah, and that sticks so, in your head too when people are machine gunned, especially when you're a young kid growing up. Yeah. <laughs> cool machine gun. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. 
Okay, Ray. Well, uh, that was great, and I uh, appreciate you being on, and we'll have to have you on again because uh, this this isn't even a, a, a small percentage of what's going on in this Cargoland area, oh, actually. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. There is so much. No one, no one can cover all of it. I mean, you could, you could do, spend a lifetime on it and, and more. No, we don't have quite that much time, but we will have you yeah. on again. <laughs> right, right. Well, I appreciate it. Okay, take care. All, all right, right. that was Ray Johnson. We'll be right back. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. We have Jeff Mudgett on the Mudgett Report talking with John Stevenson about the upcoming H.H. Holmes investigation at the Murder Castle. And this is a little bit different now because uh, we're actually on the Mudgett Report, which is Jeff Mudgett's show. So in turn, he's not on our show. We're on his show, and he's uh, interviewing us. So this was recorded last night live on the Mudgett Report. Tonight we have uh, John Stevenson joining us. He's the... uh He's an expert in paranormal research. He's the uh, host and owner of Thresholds Radio. He just got off a shoot with uh, Ghost Adventures on TV. Um, he does all my computer stuff. He specializes in infrared photography and video. And he's known in the industry as being a magnet, or in other words, just being lucky. Some of his evidence, some of his uh, his video and pictures has uh, caused quite a stir uh, when uh, when the skeptics go over it. And some of it has not been uh, found, has been found authentic. And uh, I've got him on uh, here tonight with us to discuss how we're going to go about putting the 18 into the murder castle and uh, directing these separate experts into bringing us up with the... Uh, most uh, authentic and most uh, scientifically verifiable information we can have. And uh, John, you on? Yes, I'm here, Jeff. Hey, John. John, good to uh, good to uh, hear from you. How are you? Pretty good. Kind of a switch, huh? Me on your show. <laughs> I know. I've, how many times have I been on uh, Threshold Radio? Three, three times now. I think yeah, three or four times you've been on my show. Oh, this is going to be fun. You know how many times I thought while you were drilling me with your questions, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love to uh, put the questions to this guy and uh, turn it on to the other foot. Yeah, well, you, stuff. you know something funny here, Jeff? Uh, I'm in the studio. I'm actually recording this, too. <laughs> Did you get my permission to do this? Don't you need to talk to my lawyer about that? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, let's change the subject now. What's going on? <laughs> Hey, John, explain uh, a little better than I did to our listeners uh, what your specialty is in paranormal research. Well, in research, uh, I've been involved in it my entire life, but actually the last five, six years I've been pretty heavy in uh, infrared photography and infrared video. 
and uh, I've had amazing luck with that. Uh, just a standard infrared camera, but uh, my infrared video is actually from uh, DVR surveillance systems. I used to install those, so these are all high-end, you know, very, very high-end surveillance systems. They're not the type you, you know, you get at the ghost stores or whatever, and uh, I've had amazing luck with this. It's true infrared equipment, and it uh, it tends to catch things. If things are there, it sees them. And, uh, you know, I've uh, been telling um, uh, friends and associates that um, uh, you're on the A-team. You were the first one that I actually picked for the team. And I had always envisioned you as running the command center up above on the second floor of the post office um, after you had had the opportunity to position your equipment in the basement before any of the investigation started and uh, that we were going to try to get permission from the post office to have you down the day before so that you could get all your equipment uh, um, positioned just the way you wanted it. Yeah, that's exactly what I want to do, too. I want to get in there. Uh, I haven't seen the layout yet, but, I mean, I can put as many as 16 cameras in there, and I want to get in there and pre-wire and have them set. I want to be out of the way. I don't want to be down there with you or any other guys. I want to be up at my equipment and monitor and watch the entire thing. My stuff will be turned on from the second we get there to the second we leave. You know, and that's exactly what I uh, that I had planned for you. And, uh, you know, that day before, Susan will go, uh, go with you and uh, help you uh, position equipment if you need help. But uh, I tell you, it's... Uh, you're going when you see the uh, basement and you see the layout and the way the concrete is constructed. You're, I think your mouth's going to water just from a paranormal aspect. It's going, to, it's going to be so easy. It's unobstructed. It's going to be so easy for you to get all the angles and shots. I think I don't know anything about your equipment or cameras, but it seems to me that you're going to have some great shots. Well, I got to get the layout of the building. I've got two cameras that are, are very, very high-end. They're actually Bosch cameras, and uh, they can see in uh, almost pure darkness, and there's no infrared lights or no emitters, so there's no glares, no reflections. I have two of those. So i got to pick the best place for those, and the rest are standard high-end uh, IR cameras that have little IR lights on them. So, uh, like I said, i got to get the layout, figure out the best angle, but i got little remote monitors for setting them up. We'll get this all done to where it's out of the way and just records everything that happens. Yeah, we'll get the, the layout for you, and I'll explain to you the um, the footprint, which I believe matches uh, uh, the footprint of the uh, the murder castle. Although I still haven't had an expert explain to me why a spirit or a ghost would be limited to uh, 20 feet of a uh, basement when they could move into another 100 feet of it. But uh, I'll let you experts uh, try to explain that to me one day. Yeah, I actually don't think they would be, really. I mean, realistically, they can do pretty much what they want. That's It's all in theory, too. Like I was telling you before, this kind of stuff, there's no hard, cold facts. You know, they can do whatever the heck they want, but they do tend to stay in certain areas from from what we can tell. But like I said, I can't stress it enough. There's, there's no facts and there's no rules to things like this. So once you get your equipment situated down below, John, we can set you up um, on the floor above, and you can monitor everything that's going on as we send down different people like myself or like some of the psychics that Susan is lining up for the uh, for the team. Um, and you'll be able to monitor everything that's going on, correct? Exactly, and it'll all be recorded uh, 480 frames per second in real time. And the, the tape's actually watermarked, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. What it basically means is it can't be edited or modified. So what we get is legitimate. No one can accuse us of, you know, uh, faking a tape or something. Good. 
good, good, because we have one of the uh, toughest skeptics in the world, uh, Brian Hatley from Hunting the Beast. Uh, he's on the team, and uh, he's there specifically to uh, make sure that everything we do is uh, 100% above board. And uh, if we, if on the off chance that we do find something uh, amazing, I wanted Brent there to uh, be able to sign off on uh, how how our technique and uh, and our operation was uh, true. There's nothing better than making a skeptic have to come up and say, "Wow, I was wrong. You were right." That's actually a great feeling. Yeah, and he'll do a, he'll do a great job on that. And uh, he uh, well, anyway, I'll uh, explain that next week when we uh, next week we're going to. Uh, if Mike uh, can't come on next week, the Hollywood uh, the Hollywood producer, we're going to go ahead and uh, identify the members of the uh, A team to our audience and uh, go through their bios and explain each and why we picked them as uh, their specific talents, adding to the whole, making it uh, what I'm I'm convinced is going to be the the uh, greatest collection of uh, experts and specialists. Ever and uh, I tell you what I'm, uh, I'm uh, as you can tell from my voice I'm juiced about it. Oh yeah, so am I. I'm extremely excited about being involved in this. Just the fact that record it all. I mean, document it, everything that happens. I mean that uh, you know opportunity like that doesn't come along very often. Hey, um, one, you know what? Let's uh, let's take a step back a little bit, John. Uh, it's, hey, you just got through uh, with the opportunity to hang with the uh, the Ghost Adventures guys, and uh, why don't you explain what happened? That was actually pretty cool. Uh, they got wind of uh, two pictures I actually had taken at Bachelor's Go- Grove Graveyard. I had two infrared pictures. I take them in sets. Uh, it's something I always tell people to do. Click your picture, click another, so you got things to compare to. And this is from three years ago, and I just recently looked through them, and uh, there's a crystal clear image of a ghost kneeling down and leaning forward. And uh, they got wind of that and contacted me about it. And uh, we talked, and uh, they came out to Bachelor's Grove, and they did a shootout there. And uh, I was pretty well the key of the you know thing. I was showing them where everything was going on. I actually got to do reenactments. I uh, I had a really really good time. I mean, it was not only cool; it was fun. I never did anything like that. Just like yourself, where you you just went through this shoot with the History Channel too. Explain the picture of the uh, of the spirit, John. It's actually see. I took it about three years ago. I I take everything in infrared. And uh, if you would look at the individual picture, you wouldn't actually see it. But I literally take hundreds at a time that I'm sure a lot of uh, researchers do. We all do that. But when I was scrolling through them one time really fast, you know, kind of like a slideshow, something jumped out at me. Two pictures should be pretty well identical except for leaves moving. And I zoomed in and I looked at it and there is a really, really clear, I think it's a man kind of kneeling down, leaning forward. And in the next shot... He's farther forward, and it almost looks like he might be putting flowers on a grave, but the pictures are only taken two-tenths of a second apart. So everything is ruled out. There's nothing that could possibly be, and there is a broken grave right there. So one of the members from my website actually said it looked like he was putting down flowers, and after I looked, I realized it did look like that, and in fact, like I said, there's a grave there. But uh, that one's got everybody stumped at seeing it so far. Where can uh, our uh, listeners tonight, uh, is it, have you linked it anywhere on your yeah, uh, Facebook yeah. or webpage? It's on my, uh, my website. It's on bachelors-grove.com. It's bachelors with a hyphen grove.com. And you can go on there. It's under our best of. And uh, we've got a few other photos and EVPs in there that will absolutely just blow your mind. Oh, 
my uh, maybe one of our listeners will grab it right now and then give us a call back and describe it. Uh, that'd be fun to uh, go over. It. I haven't I haven't seen it yet. Uh, what did the uh, the uh, Ghost Adventures guys think of it? They're, well, they're actually quite impressed with it. I mean, that's one of the key reasons they came out here. But uh, it's uh, it's you know it's an amazing picture, and I missed it for three years. But what it is is when you take so many, it's monotonous looking at them. But I just happen to be scrolling fast. But it, it's extremely, extremely clear. And there's nothing else it can be. Because when you take pictures, there's always, you got to take in so much stuff into consideration. But there's nothing there and it's two seconds apart. And, it, you know, it's, it just jumps out at you when you scroll them really fast. The other thing, John, that, you, uh, that you've been um, leading me on, uh, teaching me uh, about, that I had no idea of, was the uh, role that um, psychics play in paranormal investigations. And when I was at the uh, PBS studio, you know, with them, with them discussing their, uh, their shoot of, the, of, the, of our investigation, and they've uh, agreed to uh, give uh, half-day assets to us filming the entire time and then um, putting it up on the, uh, the uh, Halloween fundraiser um, for the uh, Chicago audience to, uh, to see hopefully more than Chicago audience if we get the chance to push it. But uh, you were explaining to me, oh, when I saw their faces light up when we mentioned that we were going to bring a couple of world-famous psychics um, to, the, um, to the investigation, uh, the one you and I know from the Chicago, New York area, and then Susan's working on a, a very famous one from Italy. But uh, they were clearly excited about the chance of uh, filming these psychics walking through the murder castle. It, why don't you explain to the listeners um, the use of psychics and uh, how that's done? Well, there's multiple use. I mean, some people have them in there and they call themselves feelers or stuff, and they say they sense things, things like that. But what I'm talking about is the bona fide real psychic that works with police departments when missing people, and they will actually talk to the dead people and they tell them where they're at and uh should we say who the one in chicago is are we saying his name yet or should i even say who he is if he gave you permission it's fine with me okay we're going to be using ken berg he's a friend of mine and he works with the police department and uh, he's got a i i can't quote me here a very successful success rate he finds people that are missing and uh you know there's only two ways this can happen basically either you're psychic or you're the killer and, you know, and that's really it. And his success rate is just amazing. He finds people that are missing. They come and talk to him, and he finds them that way, which is exactly what we want in that basement. And I know Ken, out of all the psychics I know, and I only know a few, he's the only one I can honestly vouch for that is 100% legitimate. But you use him like a, uh, almost like a bloodhound, like you would as something else. They can actually sense this stuff, and they, uh, they, they talk to the souls of the people that are down there. Bloodhound, that's a, that's a good way to put it. So let me get this straight. You have a fella that uh, has this, I imagine Ken knew he was different when he was a kid, right? Oh, yeah, Ken's actually got an amazing story. We'll have to get him on, too, because he has to tell that. But he's got a, a, re a really cool story about his childhood and growing up and the psychic powers and all that. You sent me his uh, bio yesterday. I was going through his resume uh, before uh, O'Kane and for the team, and He's been on every stinking TV show there is in the world. I was uh, his his bio is just amazing, and I'm not talking about local cable places. I'm talking about National Geographic and uh, the, all the big ones. 
Oh, Ken, I mean, Ken's the real deal. I mean, you know how I am. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a skeptic myself, and I, I honestly don't believe most of the psychics I hear. But, I mean, Ken is because, I mean, when it comes down to it, when you deal with the police and you find people, you and I both know, Jeff, you can't fake that. That You know, that's legitimate. Well, and let's face it. you, The police, and I, I'm not a policeman. I don't know anything about tactics or techniques or attitudes in the police force, but I would imagine it takes the police to get to the very end of their rope before they're going to call a criminal psychic in to help them solve the case because basically what they're admitting they can't solve the case using forensic evidence uh, normal techniques correct right that's pretty well it too i don't think any police departments you know call them in first even though actually with this kind of success rate they really should call them in first because you could save yourself quite a bit of work so so let me let me let me uh, try to envision this they they call Kenyon and they go out to a field where they think a missing person is uh, buried. And Ken walks the field, and he's talked to it, and they find out. He points out where he thinks it is. They dig it up, and they find bodies. Yeah, they'll find them. You know, things like I say, again, you have to talk to Ken exactly, because I can't quote what he does. But, I mean, he can actually contact the person. that You know, if they're actually deceased and not missing... See, there's different types of psychics. There's different people that are paranormal. There's different types. Ken is the particular type. His specialty is talking to the dead. There's other psychics that can read minds. There's psychics that can do other things. And there are different types of psychics. He specializes in communicating with deceased, which is, you know, especially in what we're doing here, this is what we want, too. But that's what he's known for. And so he's got a very good track record to prove it. That's why... He's so excited about going down into the, uh, the uh, basement because uh, he he just this might be the chance of a lifetime for somebody like him to uh, imagine the historical significance he may come up with that night in the basement at the post office, John. Oh, exactly. I mean, when I when I called uh, Ken and asked him if he'd like to be involved with it, you should have heard him. You know, like a kid in the candy store. He, he, you know, he jumped at the opportunity. I worked with him before. I had him at, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Waverly Hills in Kentucky. It's like a notoriously haunted, huge building. And I brought Ken up there with me. That's actually when I first met him. And uh, it, it was amazing. He walked in the building before any of us because that's what he requested to do. He came out after about 10 minutes, and I'm like, what do you think? He's like, this is one of the most haunting buildings I've ever been in. And it, it was so cool looking for stuff like this with your own you know, paranormal hound dog, so to speak. I mean, <laughs> it's the only way to go. So what you, what Ken would, uh, why don't you uh, describe to the listeners what Ken told you he would like to see happen that night when we're in the basement at the post office. He mentioned something about he wanted to go down alone first by himself correct right yeah ken ken prefers to go in he does first off he doesn't want any background in this case that's ridiculous because everyone knows the hh homes but in a normal case he doesn't request any information or background because he wants to hear it himself but what he likes to do is go down there before anyone else before there's no one in no one to bother and walk down there himself a little bit and get a feeling of the place and see what he feels or who he hears see, that's the way he prefers to do it I think that's a good idea. So what we'll do is we'll let, uh, you know, we'll all sit down and discuss this before we act, the actual shoot happens. And, of course, with uh, the PBS, uh, um, what they need for their uh, for their filming. 
But uh, we'll let uh, maybe we'll let Ken go down first, get his feel for the area. Then I'd kind of like to go down uh, by myself to see if I can uh, recreate some of the uh, you know feelings that I describe in the book, which. Quite frankly, with the uh, with the History Channel guys, you know, there were 20 people with me in the basement, film teams and audio teams and makeup and things like that. And it, I don't really think uh, we were going to find too much. Uh, you say, and, uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was no, going to. I was going to say you actually never know, though. I was telling you that off air before too, because even though there's a lot of people in there. Usually you wouldn't see anything, but again, there's no rhyme or reason. You can ask anyone that's involved with this. I mean, sometimes you can get things when you least expect it. You know, I still have not been able to have anyone explain to me why, except for the obvious dramatic effect that most paranormal investigations are done at night rather than in the daytime when I can't for the life of me begin to understand why a spirit would care well, see, that's a great one, too, because I can tell you my theory on that. Out of all the, you know, remarkable pictures I've got, Jeff, and, you know, I've got quite a few of them, every single one of them is in the daylight. A spirit doesn't care. A spirit does not care if it's day or night. A spirit doesn't care if it's Wednesday or Tuesday. It's irrelevant. If a place is haunted, a place is haunted 24-7. I'm a firm believer in that. The nighttime is nothing more than for you. You know, your team, it gives you more of a sense of adventure or something. But in reality, it's completely irrelevant. Does it have any effect on your equipment, John? Well, in some cases, uh, certain cameras, a darker environment is much better. But in other stuff, it doesn't. Like, it's still photography. You know, normal color photos, by far, I'd rather be in a light environment. I don't want to be in a dark environment. But when my infrared cameras, I prefer being in dark because the infrared works better like that. But for the most part, like I say, all my photos I've caught, uh, most of them have been outside. Bachelor's Grove Cemetery is kind of my specialty place. And I've caught every one of those in broad daylight outside. And you don't see these things either. Some of the best photos I got, you don't see them looking at them. You don't see them until you go home and go through your photos. But it's never been at night. And like I say, I, it's funny you said that because I tell people this over and over. A ghost does not care day or night. It, you know, there's not more ghosts at Halloween because you peer your people want to go to haunted places at Halloween. I, I actually don't think they celebrate holidays. You know, I could be wrong, but I got a hunch it's not, it's all the same to them. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one. Uh, no one's been able to uh, satisfactorily explain that one to me, but uh, I'll let it go because, you know, there's something about those goofy eyes and the infrared uh, look that ghost hunters gets, I guess, that uh, uh, raises the ratings, huh, John? Well, yeah, plus we all got to wear black, and I'm guilty of that. <laughs> I, I always wear black every time I do these. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated now with uh, Ken, and I can't wait for him to climb up into the, the tunnels, um, the Holmes Escape Tunnels, that uh, the History Channel guys were just fascinated with. Um, their crew got up inside and were photographing the original brick, which... Um, Adam Selzer took some great pictures of, and then uh, he some maker's marks on a couple of them that they're working on now. But uh, I am just fascinated with having Ken climb up in those tunnels. Let's hope he will. I'm, sh I'm sure he's the type of guy that's uh, not afraid of anything. But uh, climb up in those tunnels and, and uh, 
rub his hand on that texture of that uh, dusty brick, which has seen so much evil. And uh, the things he may come away with just may, well, just may uh, amaze the world, and certainly me. And uh, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be watching with bated breath as he comes back what? from being in those tunnels. I've got a hunch we're going to run yeah, across something, too, there, actually, Jeff, because uh, Adam uh, Sulzer, who you had down there, Adam is a huge skeptic. I mean, I think I told you before about the picture I caught there, which he had, finally had to admit it's the best ghost picture he's ever seen. But he's a terrible skeptic, and I was talking to Adam today. We were talking, and he told me he's got some amazing evidence from the other day when he was down there with you. And for him to say that, Mr. Skeptic, that's impressive. Uh, Adam, and you're right, Adam did tell me your pictures are the best he's ever seen uh, in all the uh, years he's been involved in the paranormal. Your evidence is the best. Uh, one of the reasons we uh, we uh, put you on the team first, That's there's no doubt about that, plus your uh, your ability to handle the electronic computer equipment that uh, the world uh, demands now for a uh, proper investigation. It's going to uh, do it. So, I tell you what, getting back a little bit, I can't wait for Ken to come out. What what we'll do is we'll let him do his um, solo, um, and I'd like to go down, and then I'd like to uh, have Ken and I go down together and maybe have him see if my presence um, down there being who I am, uh, everyone knows uh, who, who uh, I'm related to, see if that gives him any kind of different reaction from the energies down there, John. Oh, I agree. Uh, Ken and I actually had spoke about that, too. I mean, the idea of you're going to be kind of, uh, how would you put the lightning rod, actually. I mean, I got a hunch because there, it could happen two ways because, you know, your great-great-grandfather is the one that murdered these people down here. So you could get attracted in that way or, heaven forbid, you could even attract... <laughs> your grandfather great great grandfather himself but uh ken's kind of psyched about walking down there with you too yeah and that and then we'll uh when we get through with that we'll bring the uh the scientists down uh two or three we've uh, we're on the verge of uh identifying positively uh already and uh, let them uh do their best efforts and uh, use their their uh, proven techniques to see what they can uh, locate to all with your watchful eye the whole time up above. And uh, I think uh, we're going to give everybody a chance to uh, try to create the environment they always wanted to have in an investigation, but because of personalities on teams or attitudes or, or lack of control over an environment, which we will have total control over this post office environment, uh, uh, we had it when the uh, History Channels or the post office employees were just incredible, fantastic, and they did everything they could to make it the best it possibly could be. And I'm, I'm um, sure they'll do it for the PBS people, which who are just right down the um, right down the street um, from the, the post office, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Hey, Susan, do we have any callers? Yeah, I keep hearing the phone ring. <laughs> I think we have callers, John, but no answer. <laughs> Maybe they're psychic hello. callers. Hello? Hello? Oh, am I on? You're on. You're on. <laughs> uh, my name is Jay. I live out in Ventura, California. Hey, Jay, how are you? 
Good. I, I first heard your um, heard you on uh, Brent Hadley's show, Honey the Beast, and I uh, bought your book and gave it to my girlfriend. And uh, yeah, and we're par- we're paranormal investigators ourselves. <clears throat> and um, I had kind of a wild idea of like maybe you guys uh, will probably want to, but it, it might be a good idea to provoke something that actually happened down in the basement. Um, <laughs> this may sound crazy, but. Get a girl in her early, get a girl in her early twenties, dress her up during that time, have her down in there in a chair, like like as if she's restrained somehow or something, and uh, throw in a digital voice recorder and a K2 and a mail meter and stuff like that, and just have her like cry for help or something like that, and and uh, we'd go down there with her and with Ken and just see, I don't know, see what happens. What do you think of that? I'm thinking, wow, uh, I'm also thinking you might need some lawyers to get through this thing. Um, John, you're the, you're the pro here. It sounds, you know what, it sounds very intriguing. It sounds uh, possibly like it could attract things. It also sounds like it'd be difficult to find a young lady that would be willing to do that as bait. Well, the, produ- the production company could put a casting thing out and, or, and get somebody to do it. Um, we've done a lot of investigations here at a former mental state hospital, the largest one west of the Mississippi. And, uh, I had this old wheelchair that I found at a garage sale next door and I bought it for 20 bucks and I took it with me out there and I set it up with a K2 on it and a camera and I've never seen so much activity around it. It was just like things like that. I'm starting to realize that could provoke things in the, that could instigate things to happen. So... I don't know. I'm just trying to think outside the box to maybe get some really good results for you guys. Well, that is a thought, actually, because I've heard of things like that, too. I mean, uh, that, that might, that's, that's not going to attract the victims. <laughs> that's going to attract homes. Well, it yeah, attract something. I mean, I don't know. I'm I think sorry? it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. I'll, uh, I'll run it by the PDF people and see. Well, I, yeah, I mean, make it, of course, safe so, so that nobody's going to get hurt <laughs> or something like that, but... <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, like I say, it might be hard finding a volunteer. Although we've probably got some listeners out there right now, and uh, maybe we could get one uh, young lady to call in. There's your volunteer there, right there, Jeff. Hear the phone. <laughs> Hello. Right, thanks, thanks, guys. Bye. Yeah, thanks, take care. Jeff. Hello. Yes. Hi, Jeff. It's Lucy. Hey, Lucy. How are you? Hi, I'm calling to volunteer to sit by myself in the basement. <laughs> yeah, I, I told you, Jeff. <laughs> We've got a volunteer. Uh, I almost said victim. Um, <laughs> Lucy, you are a brave, a brave woman. Now, you know what went on down there before you. Yes, make I this, do. Uh, okay. Yes, I do. Actually, you know what? Um, uh, we're we're heading out to Valeska, I think, in August, and. I am so excited to go there, but I kind of, and I also wanted to talk to John. Uh, I am so excited about you guys, Ghost Adventures, going to Bachelor's Grove. You know, that is probably one of my favorite places to investigate ever. Yeah, it was actually a real good time. It's the first time anyone's ever done, been there to do that. I had a, I had an outstanding time. It was fun. I don't know about what they caught, if anything, though, because Zach is real secretive and he wouldn't tell me anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've um, you know I've been there several times, and always you know my favorite uh, piece of equipment is always the spirit box, mm-hmm. and I have always gotten really really good um, responses out of it. 
um, we've gotten, you know, female voice. We get a lot of male voices. We get names. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Um, you know, did uh, did you guys go farther back into the woods? Yes, where I, the, um, I took them way into the... I, I've been going to Bachelor's Grove since longer than I want to say, late yeah. 70s. Yeah. I know every inch of that place. Uh, I took them way, way back into the part where the clearing, that odd clearing. I, I showed them every little thing out there because I, I know that place like the back of my hand. Yeah, yeah. Back by the teepee over there with the, the wooden structure that's back there. Exactly. Um, I've gotten some really really good um, spirit box activity out of that. So I am so excited about that. I can't wait to see that. It's a, I've I mean, heard voices out there. To... Say, I've heard things out there, too. As a matter of fact, when you see the Ghost Adventures, I did a I did a reenactment for myself, which is kind of cool. When I was standing there one <laughs> time, there was a, I heard an older lady behind me just go, John, real nice, not threatening. And I turned around and no uh-huh. one was there. Well, I, I spent like two hours doing a reenactment during Ghost Adventures for that. So you can watch my 30-second <laughs> scene of just hearing my name being called. But <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I've been told to go already in, in the teepee. <laughs> so it was like, um, but I am so excited to, to, to hear about that. I can't wait to see the activity. And, and Jeff, yes, I'm volunteering. I will sit in the basement by myself. Oh, my God. Um, hey, Lucy? Yes. Before you go, I've yes. got some listeners on that uh, that aren't uh, paranormal uh, in the group or the or the or the gang. Explain to them what a spirit box is. I, I don't even know what it is. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. A spirit box is actually a uh, it, it's an AM FM radio that just sweeps back and forth. It goes back and forth. Um, it doesn't stop on one section. And you know, it, the technical part I really can't explain. But what it does, it gives spirits or entities the uh, ability to communicate. And a lot of times you'll have it going back and forth, and it's just basically white noise. And out of that white noise, you'll get voices or you'll get reactions or you'll get words. And um, I have used it at Bachelors Grove. I've used it at Eastern State. I've used it at uh, Bobby Mackey's. I've used it at uh, Mansfield Reformatory, um, but the best, the absolute best experience I've ever had with it was at the Stanley Hotel and in uh, the Stephen King Suite. And oh, where, in Colorado. Yes, yes, in Estes Park. And I actually had, and this was when I first started, and I will kick myself forever for not having a recorder going i had a conversation with the spirit and his name was philip and it was pretty intense it was pretty long and it was absolutely amazing and of course i have no proof of it but you know what in in my heart i know what i experienced and that experience right there just sold me on the spirit box now i know a lot of people don't like to use it because of the white noise and i guess it's like an acquired taste you either like it or you don't. And I just happen to be one of the people that I really, truly enjoy using it. I've gotten really good responses with it. And I'm one of those investigators, you know, um, my, my investigative partner, he has all of the equipment, all of the toys. And me, when I go, I really rely on basically my senses, my digital recorder, and my spirit box. And I have to say that for me, that works the best. You know, I just go someplace and I just rely on my senses. You know, I, um, 
I, I can usually feel or I can usually tell when there's something around me. And when we go to someplace, especially the Bachelor's Grove, I'll walk in and I know exactly what corner I want to go to. Um, I have gotten, oh, God, what did we get? We got uh, a little girl giggling. Um, I haven't been lucky enough to get any photographs with any type of anomalies or anything like that. Mostly all of my experience in the Grove has been mostly voices, um, feelings, but I'm telling you, I love that spot. I really love that spot all over. Um, there's uh, Heading back to the, the clearing back there, there's a spot where it actually, to me, felt like some kind of vortex. John, I don't know if you agree it with actually, that. Actually, uh, I felt that. Yeah, exactly. I've had other people say the same thing. I've had people walk back there. I've actually had people walk underneath that teepee structure and actually pass out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know some people... Uh, the the energy there is negative. Me, I, you know, it doesn't doesn't phase me in the least. I you know, if it the darker, I'm gonna run towards it. You know, I um, oh God, you know, just um, I have sat alone in the basement of Prospect Place. I've sat in the, alone in the basement of uh, oh God, Saddam's Vault Rectory. And I guarantee you, when I get to Valeska, I'm going to sit alone in a room somewhere and try to see what's what. Tell you, you know, where you I want mean, to go in Valeska. I went there. Go upstairs, stay in the children's room, put multiple cameras on the floor from different angles and watch the balls move around and the door will open and close. But get your camera on a wide-angle zoom so you can see the top and the bottom of the door so people can't say you're uh -huh. doing it yourself. Because I was there and we got amazing footage there. Really? Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, we got uh, we got uh, we have film of a door closing at uh, Rolling Hills, so we were lucky enough to catch that. Um, but I really can't wait till we get to Valeska. Um, but I just wanted to, to call and you know and just just tell you I'm so excited about finally somebody going to Bachelor's Grove and finally you know giving it the exposure that it really it deserves. Yeah, hopefully, it's not too much exposure. Well, I'm what? a little worried. <laughs> well, yeah. Tell you what, Lucy, thanks for calling in, and um, uh, appreciate it. And uh, oh, I got another caller. Thanks, Lucy. All right, dear. Hello. Bye, bye. Hello. Hey, Jeff, John. Hi. Hey, it's Matt. Matt. How are you doing? Matt. <laughs> What's going on, Everybody, Jeff? This, How are you doing? This is my good. This is my good friend Matt from uh, Chicago, and uh, one of the uh, one of the great paranormal investigators uh, too. What's up, Matt? Uh, not much. I I was actually listening before, and uh, a couple things that I wanted to comment on. I I I know Jeff, we had touched on it a little bit, but then got off track because the uh, the pizza was so good <laughs> when we went out. Um, Chicago pizza. I know. Yeah, I, I I know it's backtracking a little bit, but uh, as far as what you were talking about with the day and night uh, investigations and why people investigate at night, blah blah. Um, and I, I actually do fully agree with John. Is we we have a lot of cameras that that function better during the day. And yeah, it's not like spirits are sitting around, you know, drinking coffee, waiting for it to be night to come out. <laughs> um, the other thing too is with a lot of a lot of pieces of equipment that we have, there's there's less, pardon the pun, but there's less life going on at night. So it it cuts into less contamination. <clears throat> you can. Most likely at night, pinpoint it, and also during uh, during the nighttime, depending on uh, temperature and barometric pressures that are, are currently going on, sound travels either farther or less. So it's easier to 
to weed out at night, but yeah, when you, you you can do a night investigation, but you don't have to have the lights off. Right. And a lot of times with a lot of the shows, it's for dramatic effect. Oh, exactly. But like I say, day or night's irrelevant. But like I say, the equipment, some things definitely do work better at night in the dark. Oh, yeah. Well, and, uh, yeah, and you're also, you run into that uh, that thing where there's less activity on these places at night, so you're not getting the, uh, the uh, odd noises that... Uh, you, you know, Matt, you have to eliminate if you want to make the uh, audio um, detections uh, worth, worth anything. I think what Susan's trying to do is, I don't know if the post office is going to let us uh, stay overnight, but I think we're going to be able to have it Saturday after, uh, after it closes so that we can uh, eliminate as much uh, excess uh, outside noise as we possibly can. Yeah, and to elaborate on what uh, she was just talking about with the spirit box, and a lot of the reason that people don't don't really use it or something that do they uh, you know they they use and they don't like it. Um, basically, what you're doing uh, on the technical side of it is you're scanning through about five to six frequencies per second. So what that's doing is uh, even if you get a little blurb of a uh, ooh, ee, uh, like something like that, it's not a full word. So once, once the a full word or a sentence or a phrase or something comes through, it's scanning over, you know, sometimes 15 to 20 frequencies to where that radio is not going to pick up. It's only designed to pick up a certain uh, a certain frequency at a time. So that's where the communication will come out more, and it's audible right on site. The one thing that we've done with ours is... We've modified our our spirit boxes to where there is no white noise. You just hear little clicks. There's no static. There's no nothing. You just hear little clicks. So everything that comes through is actually really clear. And we put an audio out uh, audio output in ours, where we can hook it up to a digital recorder. So it's recording everything that is being caught at that moment. You guys are both way over my head. I'm just walking <laughs> down there and gonna be scared. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we've developed a, a, a decent amount of equipment. We we have an EMF detector that will scare you, and we, uh, it's, or, I'm sorry, an EMF detector, an EM pump, if there is any theory to it, but it's always worth giving a try. Um, that does have, it's an EM pump with a uh, yes-no indicator, kind of like the flashlight test. But if they can feed off um, electromagnetic fields, it's creating it for them and making it easier to communicate. And I swear, when you hear this thing kick on, you really want to be wearing like a lead cup or, or something to to protect protect your parts. <laughs> I've heard of those. I've never used those before, but I've heard about the, the those EMF pumps. Are supposed to kind of make it easier for the energies to get through or whatever. Matt, before you go, I'm going to give you 60 seconds to uh, give me an idea, a concept that you always wanted to be able to do at an investigation, that if you were controlling the entire environment, what would you want to do that would make this one unique and possibly give you the chance to uh, discover something that you hadn't had before? What, what would you do? Oh, I'd want to have more than 60 seconds down there, but um, anyway, <laughs> it's, 
talking about right <laughs> now. You, on the air. Yeah, we, we only, we only got know. seven minutes. I know, Jeff. Um, so basically what I want to do is I want to, I want to construct, or construct a controlled experiment as far as having bodies. I, I agree with the previous caller, but um, recreating a, a trigger object uh, is the easiest way to refer to it. Um, but also in the same respect to uh, do it with the trigger object, do it without the tr trigger object, do it with more people, do it with less people, and con conduct a control and then see if there's any fluctuation um, after that, uh, as far as if it has to do with um, in the, the back tunnel to where there's a, a whole bunch of bars and stuff like that. But I also would love to do a solo investigation, and I would love to have you do a solo or a solo EVP session um, monitored by camera just in case there is anything down, or, you know, just in case it does yield anything. Okay, I uh, I tell you what, we're going to have a lot of great ideas, and um, uh, we're going to try to uh, put it together in the best way we can without contaminating what's there, if anything's there. And I tell you what, Matt, thanks for calling in, and um, I'll uh, I'll talk to you later. Thanks for calling in. Thanks, Matt. All right, Jeff, thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks John. Nice talking with you. Okay. Bye. Well, John, do you see uh, do you see the ideas and uh, this uh, this this uh, A team concept that I put together with the greatest uh, group of the best of the best? Is uh, you should see it, uh, the ideas and the numbers of people that are interested in taking part in it, and uh, it's uh, getting quite exciting. What's exactly what's cool about this is I'm going to be filming this from start to finish. And uh, like I say, nothing can be faked. So everyone in there is going to be filmed. And if they don't want to be filmed, they're not going to be down there. But there's going to be cameras everywhere, and we're going to catch every single minute. I just, I just hope Susan has luck with this uh, very famous Italian psychic. We, Ken's going to be there. But if uh, I just, uh, I am intrigued to see both of those guys climb up in those Holmes escape tunnels with that original brick still there and just sit down with their back to the brick, uh, close their eyes and see what happens to these guys who obviously have something different about them that, uh, you know, they've proven over their lifetime. They feel things we, we all don't, but I just can't wait to see, to have them tell us, tell the world on film what, what they feel down there and have you filming the entire event. I just think it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, John. Oh, so do I. I'm, like I say, well, you and I talk all the time. You know how excited I am about this. From the first day, well, when we were talking about WGN way back then, remember that's one of the first things I said. I go, I'm going to have to get us in that post office because we got to do this. And at that time, you're like, I don't want to go back in the post office. <laughs> no, it, that was a... Uh, Everybody, John uh, hooked me up with Pam Grimes and got the uh, the five minute uh, piece she did on WGN. The great piece she did. Um, um, she went back down into the basement. I didn't want to go back down after a, when you you know you read the book. I, I told myself I didn't want to go. But the History Channel guys talked me into it, and there was a uh, there's like a five minute <laughs> uh, scene there where uh, I'm at the basement door, and quite frankly, I had no reason to go back down, but uh, eventually went down. But uh, this, uh, I, uh, I just, uh, this thing with the psychics uh, excites me and uh, to see what they feel because I know if they feel what I felt that first time, 
it's going to be, uh, I don't know if earth shattering is too much of a word, but uh, they're going to be able to tell. You know what, John? I think they're going to be able to describe history down there and come up and make it so real that it's going to be hard for the skeptics to uh, to uh, say anything that, wow, that could be true. Well, I'll tell you one thing I'm excited about, Jeff, is actually it's like sending Ken down there. Okay, Ken can talk to the dead. Okay, so say people start coming out there, spirits start talking to him. Now, I've never done this before. You realize we're going to be filming him in high-end infrared cameras while there are spirits standing right there talking to him. Do you understand the possibilities in that? No, I don't. Explain it. There's a possibility of actually getting all these ghosts and images standing right next to Ken on film. I tell you, it's uh, it's a uh, you know I I there's a part of me that knows it's a one in a million chance, but uh, it's a chance that we have to take. It's like I told you before, John, and we've uh, we've got about three minutes left. It was something that uh, you know before I went down there the first time I didn't believe in ghosts, I didn't believe in spirits, I didn't <laughs> believe in uh, God, and uh, an hour later when I came out, I believed in all three. So there's uh, I don't know if we'll get pictures of ghosts and things like that, but I, I, I would bet serious money that uh, Ken and the fella Susan is lining up, we can't use his name yet on the air mm-hmm. until he approves, but uh, those two guys are going to feel that energy, and for you to be filming with IR, I just, uh, it's, uh, it's a uh, chance that, uh, I tell you what, the PBS guys are just juiced about it. I'm sure they get to be the first ones that ever do something like this, too, because it's never been done. Never been done. That, you can say that? This has never been done? Well, I, I don't know any case of a, a real police psychic going down trying to contact spirits while being filmed. Wow. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed that. Uh, I wouldn't have guessed... Uh, that at all. I would have thought someone else would have thought uh, of this concept and uh, put it into play. See, I could be wrong, but I really have a hunch, especially since we film in infrared, too. I'm not using just a regular camera, but I don't think it's been done. Well, John, this has been a great show. Everybody, you can see, you can hear now why John's been picked. He's uh, he's going to be like the rock of Gibraltar for the team, and he's going to anchor us all and keep us all reasonable and pointed in the right direction. And that's what I'm... Uh, counting on him for. Hey, John, before you go, did you see that uh, that uh, poll that uh, ABC News put out yesterday that I put up on the Facebook page about 80 million people believing in aliens? It was on with George Stephanopoulos on ABC. Yeah, yeah, I did see that, actually. I'm actually, I'm into that kind of research a little bit, too, so I'm not going to really laugh, but yeah, I did see that. <laughs> you know, and uh, that's why I brought up, when I, when I posted that, I brought up that Gallup had done a poll where 60 to 100 million Americans believed in the existence of the paranormal, which makes everything we're doing very uh, legitimate for me because uh, I know we have the chance to uh, give them all something to uh, grab onto, and um, I can't wait. And uh, I'm just uh, thrilled and honored, thrilled and honored, John, that you've agreed to uh, be a part of it. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Well, John... Good night, and uh, thank you very much. Uh, we'll uh, we'll be talking, and uh, everybody, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us tonight. And uh, join in next week when uh, 
I'll either have Mike Nichols from uh, Pilgrim Studio and uh, the History Channel on to explain inside baseball of TV, or we're going to be announcing the uh, the individual members of the A team and going through their bios and resumes uh, to explain to you and explain to you why each was picked and have we'll have each one call in to. Uh, uh, put 10 minutes on the show, and it'll be a fascinating program. Thank you very much. It's been a, a great uh, time, and uh, thanks for, for listening. Bye. That was the Mudger Report. You can find the Mudger Report on Blog Talk Radio. Also, you can catch him here on Thresholds Radio. He's had a couple interviews with us. You can skim through our shows and find them. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Sunday. Mm-hmm.